0: became, I mean because of uh, they had to scramble so much The Metropolis died in November November of 60 the same yeah. and and they had, and the Turandot uh, new production was, was planned to be conducted by Metropolis it turned out to be Stokowski because Metropolis died in November and, and they re- actually contacted, the funny part of it, De Sabata who had never conducted at the Met I don't think was contacted. He was on leave from Scala, basically on, on sick leave from Scala. So obviously, he, when he thought about it, he, he, he said no, and they found Stokowski was living with his two little children. You know, he married so many times, that, and when he married Gloria, was it Gloria Vanderbilt? Who's, who, who was the fa- who was the mother of his children? He married a much younger woman. Uh, Did he marry a, a relative of Chaplin? Una O'Neill was one wife. Yeah. Well, she was, no, Chaplin's daughter, Geraldine Chaplin, was one wife. But I don't know where the two kids were. And he was living right here in New York with the two uh, with his two little boys, I think were both boys, when they, uh, they, they contacted, he was really conducting the American Symphony and things like that in New York. Gosh, just think what turned out would have been like with Metropolis. Tchaikovsky was pretty good.
1: Oh, well, he was good. Eccentric.
0: But- yeah. Eccentric. Yeah. Metropolis would have given but he but he was more than eccentric. I mean that at the rehearsal well, I'll I'll will I'll talk about we'll that. Get there. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Shall I start? Yeah. Rudolf Bing's eleventh season opened on November November twentieth with not just a new production, but a production of Nabucco, which was had never been done at the Metropolitan. This followed with the tradition, a Bing's tradition, actually, of doing early Verdi operas like Macbeth, the year or so before, and also Ernani, which was actually had been done at the Met. The, there was a pall over that whole opening, as far as I was concerned, and many other people, because I think it was announced right before Leonard Warren died in March, uh, that this would be a, an opening night for Leonard Warren, and Nabucco, the role of Nabucco would have fit, fit just him wonderfully. The the production itself was very drab. It was a, it was one of those few opening nights I remember that it was dark, dismal. The uh, production team Theo Otto, who had done the I think he had done the uh, Tristan earlier for being it was a, a co-production, basically. Theo Otto and Wolfgang Roth were the designers. For some reason, because it's a big chorus opera, the stage was completely empty except risers and platforms for the chorus, and they, the chorus was directed quite well going in and out. There was basically, Conobuco was a lot of chorus in it, and the principals were, in, were actually not even directed. They kept on wandering around in, in, in very drab costumes, the lighting as i remember it was sort of a, like a dull gray and of course it was the over the whole evening for me and for many people in the audience was still the death of leonard warren to add to the, the, the sadness of the of the of the opening was the announcement the press the announcement a, a month before the sudden death of UC Burling in a clinic in, in Sweden. Strangely enough, both Burling and Warren were the same age when they died. They both were 48. Warren would have been 49 six weeks after he died on March 4th, 1960. And Burling, I don't know, can't remember, but he was only 48. <clears throat> so it was not a. It was a very good attendance. The box office did very well, as as it was always doing in those days. But the audience was very subdued, and watching this production wasn't easy because it wasn't uh, there was no color to to brighten it up. And Leonie Reznik, who was one of my favorite singers, could not repeat the success she had with Lady Macbeth. It just was wrong for her. The high notes, the the not the coloratura so much. The high notes were there, but there's so much of that role in the middle voice, and f- for some reason, it was not. It was not in her voice, and she was very uncomfortable sounding. And Bing was furious because the dress rehearsal, where she was really not not better, she was not as good. The new production dress rehearsals had been open to critics, and the critics reviewed it and really gave her a very very poor review, and it infuriated Bing. I have no idea why, because she wasn't much better at the rehearsal. And as as a, as a re- result, after the opening, the next day, in his in his usual manner, he just announced that critics will f- from now on be bought from all new production dress rehearsals. I didn't realize they went to the other ones, but apparently they did. They don't anymore. They don't go to any of the rehearsals. <clears throat> the rest of the cast t- trying to filled those big shoes of Leonard Warren, and he did very well, I must say, was a fairly young uh, Cornell McNeil. Uh, The voice was in wonderful shape. It it was wonderful. It it was good. It projected in a different way than Leonard Warren. It had much more... There was a different kind of a quality, but he sang it well. He just, you know, didn't quite fill the shoes. Warren had been a very experienced Verdi baritone for uh, almost 20 years before that. And... uh, it, it was hard, except uh, vocally he did a good job, and then Giotti, Bernardo Giotti, a wonderful bass, <clears throat> made his debut. And wonderful voice. I, I he had a good career at the Met, but he was never really cast as as in the roles he should have been, because I got to know him. He had a voice that almost wasn't the quality of Pinza, but it had that presence like Pinza had. But physically, he didn't have... poor he, he, bernaldo he, he, he sort of was lumpy, tall but lumpy, and they gave him all the high priest roles and all the roles. But what he really wanted to sing, and vocally he could do it, were some of the more glamorous bass roles. But he was uh, got good reviews, actually, for his debut. And uh, uh, Elias, oh Fernandi, not Elias was the Fiano, which is a fairly small role, and Fernandi, Eugenio Fernandi was the tenor. That's also a fairly small role, and ship is conducted. It was a, it was not well received, and it, and Bing was really Riesneck ended by singing all the eight or nine performances, but Bing was trying to get nobody, nobody wanted to sing it. He he, he offered it. She was un, Leonie was very unhappy. Doing this, but she went along with it. Uh, meanwhile, uh, uh, Bing, of course, with the exception of Kalas, who five years earlier or six or ten years earlier, not ten years, but would have been the only other one, nobody wanted to touch it. it. Even got to the point of offering Mary Curtis Verna, who actually never turned anything down. She just stepped in for everybody and she knew the whole repertoire, but she wouldn't touch that. And Price. Pardon? Offered it to Price. Oh uh, uh, yes, Leontine Price, but Leontine Leontine hadn't made a debut yet, so it would have been a debut. I don't think I, I that was a rumor. I, I I don't I never heard that. I know half a dozen sopranos that that was on the roster that turned it down, but Leontine made her debut later. I don't think in a million years she would have she wouldn't have made a debut um, in a, in a, in that opera, uh, especially if it were not the original cast. And there was a strange thing. I, I know. I was. This was my last year as a part time, and I was chief usher. And Bing had a brilliant idea, which which backfired. And I thought it was, it was a stupid idea because we had never kept lake, We never kept people out. We couldn't. We couldn't keep them out. There were no space. The fire department wouldn't let us just close the doors like we do now, and people come coming at a proper interval or at the, at the intermission. And he d- he decided, and he talked to the house manager who I worked for, that for the pensiero chorus, which is in the la- that was done that revival not revival that production was done for some strange reason in three acts. Right now, the production that exists is with one intermission, and the beginning of the third act was not really the pensiero That comes in the in between the two scenes of the third act. But in this production have no idea musically why they did it or why why Bing wanted it because he wanted the audience firmly in their seats. So he said no latecomers allowed just for the Vapensiero and then after that the crowds come in. Well, I told all the ushers, very unsuccessful. People were not used to it. They shoved the ushers aside and the few people that stayed out filed in during the beginning of the after the Vampenzero, so it was all all for nothing, and it was ridiculous uh, musically. I don't know what they what they were thinking of, because that chorus doesn't even belong there. And then and during and also the first week, <clears throat> the the wonderful wonderful production of Carmen came back without. The original director, the one that, that created sensation with Risa Stevens and Richard Tucker a year or so before came back not only with probably in my memory the most unsuitable Carmen there was a Swedish mezzo who had quite a reputation in, in Europe, he even sang in Trojans in, in Covent Garden, called Kirsten Meyer. She absolutely had no idea she didn't even wear the right wig she walked through it, she didn't she, didn't, she wasn't a bit seductive and she had this kind of a muddy mezzo kind of voice and s- since Burling had actually he was contracted for 10 performances and I believe most of them were for the, Don Jose, Vickers was the tenor that night and she was I, I thought the most unsuitable mezzo or singer for Carmen that could ever exist and the reviews were scathing, and having not seen the production, she was doing her own thing that what didn't make any sense at all and uh, then a wonderful I thought wonderful only sang uh, saying a lot in Paris and, and an American French singer called Jane Rhodes Jane Rhodes was grew up in France <clears throat> she was half American her father was American I think and her mother was French and she was. The first time I heard about her, what circulated was in a marvelous pirate recording of uh, of the Prokofiev uh, Fiery Angel, and she was so sensational. I don't know whether it was a stage performance, but it just circulated like wildfire. In those days, it was on a pirate LP, and everybody copied it, so everybody was anxious for Jane Rhodes. I personally thought she was incredibly beautiful, incredibly sexy, and the voice was not, not not the big, luscious voice that it sounded like on the recording, but I, I thought that was a good Carmen. The only different thing was, she had never seen the production, and she was doing a completely different Carmen than, than Kirsten Meyer, and the production was in shambles. The direction didn't exist anymore. <clears throat> the, the lack of tenors for Carmen, they they imported somebody called I'm trying to figure out the name uh, uh a uh, Russian tenor, Nikol Nik, Nik, Nikolay Nik, Nikola, something like that, F- very forgettable, and he he was the Don Jose, and then during the run they had a one performance only somebody called Leonardo de, Del Fiero, where they ever got him from was probably, in my memory, the the worst tenor I've ever heard at the Met. I mean, really could not cope with any of uh, of it one performance only. And so that common production, that season was in complete shambles.
1: That,
0: was, where was Tucker? Where were all the? Well, they were singing. They were, they were rehearsing Martha and things like that. No, there was other repertoire they were in. Yeah. Uh, the the best part so far of the the debut was the soprano that. Became very popular at the Met, singing, singing a lot of repertoire. All, I mean, a big variety of repertoire. But she, that season, she made a de- debut in Butterfly. Gabriella Tucci, Gabriella Tucci, was a beautiful sound, a very good Butterfly. It was uh, a, an audience pleaser. I didn't, nobody realized that in future seasons. And she was there for quite a. Few years that she'd sing everything from Traviata up to Louisa Miller and Aida, but she she sang amazing repertoire. But that was a very good debut, and Barry Morell, who was just up and coming young tenor, also was was impressive. That impressive compared to what happened opening night. I think it was the second or third night. But a, a big a big a debut that season. I thought because everybody. knew knew about her and she was late to opera. She sang so many concerts. She sang uh, operas and concerts. Eileen Farrell was really a popular singer, starting with her radio program in the late 40s. And she came late to opera and she had already made her debut as Santuzza in San Francisco and Bing decided to have her make her debut as Alcestis, which was a great idea because of the kind of voice she had and Flockstad had sung Her Farewell as Alcestis a few years before in a very old production, so he didn't want to spend the money. So there was a young stage director, an Englishman, Michael Manuel, who he asked to do the direction and create the production. So it was basically a very simple production. And Anthony Tudor did the choreography and Leinsdorf conducted. And Gedda was the tenor. She made it for, for my ears and for the ears of many in the audience, although she certainly was no stage animal or no stage figure, she just was short, dumpy, but she just stood firm and sang. It was in English, that's another thing. English is a very hard language to sing in. And she sang absolutely magnificently. I mean, it, it took the whole audience by storm, forgetting about the production and... Uh, ghetto was very also very good there is a uh, broadcast existing of that of that season and the only other role the critics criticized her basically because she just stood still and didn't move well f- when you have a voice like that you don't you don't have to move she was not um she was not she had sung for so many years in concerts at the little with uh, the little orchestra society places like that she made her living and she was very simple, No more than simple. She was married to uh, an active policeman, and she lived in Staten Island. And her lifestyle, out of off the off the stage, was completely different than anybody I've ever known. She didn't have any. She didn't believe in glamour of a prima donna. But anyhow, it was an important, important debut for the Met. And that season, she also sang because she had the size voice for it. She sang. A very sung, sang but not acted. A really impressive Gioconda. Those are the two roles she sang that season. But the most important that season stands out um, away from most seasons because it was two wonderful evenings. The first one was a double debut. Now there've been double debuts in my time. I remember particularly. Uh, the Aida with Stella and Bergonzi created created excitement for Stella and and nothing for Bergonzi really, but it was a double debut. This was the debut on a Friday night on January 27th. It was actually the day after the the Martha premiere. but I'll come come to that later. <clears throat> of of Leontine Price and and Franco Corelli, unbelievable. I mean the that evening in my mind. It was first Leontine, then hearing hearing her on the stage of the Met for the first time. She had sung a concert out of the Met, so it really wasn't, it was called her debut, but she had sung something in, in one of those Met, uh, not a telecast, a radio program. But she was really uh, anticipated by a fervent audience because they knew of her work. Um, the television Tosca preceded that. And then the San Francisco Opera had already hired her for the dialogue of the Carmelites, but because of the barrier being broken in '56 by Marin Anderson, it was slightly delayed. But in a way, it worked out well because she had the time to get into the not just the repertoire, but get in, into the acting abilities. The, the whole idea of singing an opera. Her opening aria was spectacular. Then you heard this incredible voice, like a voice of an animal, (laughs) singing off stage. And the whole evening was was one after the other. I mean, we got to the... The the De Quello was sensational. I mean, he was actually tall, slender. With a, a voice, a really big voice, and Leontine's voice was large voice, beautifully controlled pianos, unbelievable pianos. It re- reminded the old timers of the early days of Zinka Milanov. A different voice entirely, but that same passion, the same voice for Leonora that that sh- could should always happen when you when you hear any soprano in that role. And the audience was getting more excited all the time. Her last the last act aria. Received an ovation, incredible ovation. And at the end, the curtain calls and all—it was really a spectacular night. It's very rare. The old timers could remember maybe back before nineteen forty-three, but I've never heard since a double debut of two such major artists. It was like giving giving the audience. Uh, cake and frosting and everything. <laughs> they could have separated them and had them make their debut separately. It was an incredible... I remember that Friday night. And uh, Leontine became... And, and Corelli. The sad part of that season <clears throat> was when Franco Corelli... Bing had to make a big, a big decision. I don't I don't understand, but tenors tenors are hard to figure out anyway, but worse in those days. Delmonico told Bing... And Delmonico had been a mainstay since his debut. That's almost 10 years now. And operas like Aida, the only sang Trovatore once. It wasn't a question of the repertoire of Corelli's. He just said if Corelli came to the Met, he would not sign his contract. So he didn't appear that season. A matter of fact, he never appeared again after that. I don't know why. I mean, Corelli, maybe he didn't know Corelli's real age. I mean, in press releases and what he looked like, Everybody said the young, twenty-nine-year-old tenor, making his debut at the Met. I found out two years later that he was thirty-nine years old. Now I don't know how old Delmonico was, but if he thought he was twenty-nine, Del was probably forty-nine or fifty. But if he if he really thought he was thirty-nine, he wouldn't have acted up so. Well. It was sad because we had uh, we had Aida's we couldn't cast uh, that season the Met the Met did Aida with. And Corelli didn't sing Aida because after the debut and at the end of January, he, his contract called for him to stay pretty much in town and start rehearsing the new production. That's the second great, great night of of that season. And you get two nights in a season that great, it's very rare, was the revi- revival after many years of Puccini's Tour Andor. And Bing had uh, contracted Corelli for the... Trovatore and the Turandot, and that was that was to be Birgit Nielsen and Anna Mafo. And unfortunately, the conductor was to be Dimitri Metropolis. Another tragedy, in November of that year, Metropolis was rehearsing uh, in Milan uh, one of the Mahler symphonies, and uh, had a heart attack and dropped dead at the podium at the rehearsal. So that meant that, that repertoire at the Met that he did Metropolis is amazing he would do Tosca Butterfly even did Kevin Pack he loved doing the standard repertoire it wasn't like George Zell doing certain Wagner and doing Rosenkavalier or Fritz Reiner Electra and, and and Dutchman and things like that Metropolis in all the years he was at the Met just loved doing Tosca and everything he touched was so wonderful for the singers because there was a a, a rapport between his conducting and the artist's <clears throat> and turned up was without a conductor and uh, uh, they scrambled and they, they approached Victor de Sabata who actually was getting on in years, quite on in years, and he was on leave of absence from La Scala and, I, and they approached him thinking he would have the time, but he was on leave of absence. It was really a sick leave, but he didn't want to tell anybody and that didn't turn out, so they found Leopold Stokowski, who never conducted at the Met, living here in New York with his two little, ch- little children, uh, happily just conducting odd at the American Symphony once in a while. Nothing, nothing concrete, and uh, he agreed to, to conduct the. Uh, and he had had some problems with his hip, and his not those days, they didn't do hip surgery. They were they were giving him therapy and all. And finally, he said he would do it. And the hip problems continued during the whole rehearsal period, so it was a nightmare. But he's a force of nature, real force of nature. And that opening was on – oh, it turned out it was January – no, 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 it was later, January 20 – it was in February, it was early, early February. Sorry, I just... It's okay. Oh, I'm sorry, it's right here. It was not early. It was February the 24th, which was about a month after the uh, the famous Strovatore. Meanwhile, Corelli, was singing perform- Corelli and Price were singing other performances. You could not get a ticket. Well, tickets were hard to get anyway, but this was mass hysteria. And then uh, Corelli was rehearsing the tour on And Cecil Beaton was to do the production. And this was the last production. Strangely enough, The new house was talked about, Lincoln Center was definitely, the ground was broken about a year before, and the only question was, will the Met was invited to participate? At at this particular season, the board hadn't made up his mind. They didn't say no, they didn't say yes. So this was the very last production that Cecil Beaton was was designing a production for the dimensions of the stage of the old house. After this production, any new production after that, well, there was the next season. The they were given the dimensions of the new stage, not much different, but different in depth a bit and in height. And so every production after that, after starting with the next season, was geared to the new house, so it would fit on the stage and look more comfortable. The Turandot, which went, which was wonderfully designed for the old stage, the old house was a magnificent set. Cecil Beaton was a master of colors. He was basically a, a photographer. He was a man of all seasons, but he loved designing. And the costumes were spectacular. They were not gaudy. They were wonderful materials. They spared no expense in, in making the costumes and fabrics. And it was a very simple set, but the colors were magnificent. And the entrance of Turin, i never, I never forget, she comes in this staircase, which, look... Slightly smaller on the on the stage of the new house, was spectacular in the old house with her perched on top coming down. That night was probably maybe a a little more exciting. Gastrovator was a a debut night of two great great singers. This was a production that turned out hadn't been seen since the early thirties, and Nielsen just Nielsen alone plus Corelli, the two of them together, I can't describe it. They were spectacular. It's like you never heard, when Nielsen opened up and then Corelli opened up after, uh, especially after her entrance, the the whole house, the theater was reverberating with the sound of their voices, and the audience was getting more and more hysterical, but it's a combination of people seeing their very first Turandot, although they could have seen it, in a small production at City Opera, which I did in the in the late 40s, early 50s. But Stokowski conducting, even though the rehearsals were a shambles, not a shambles, but he had his own ideas of Tempe and the singers had to adjust to it and he was very eccentric. He had the hip injury flared up. So he came in a wheelchair and with the nurse in attendance. And at the rehearsals, he insisted that the nurse be in the at the pit with him, which wasn't so bad until the opening night when he had the nur- the nurse. I'm not don't can't remember that she was in a nurse's uniform or not, but she she sat there not not that she could have done anything. Well, he his entrance was a roar of approval. Salkovsky was a very special conductor. He'd been in Philadelphia so many years. The audience not not only knew him but in the world of of the world of orchestral conducting, he was. He' a giant, and he it's funny he wasn't taller and he wasn't that big shock of hair, and the way the beat and all he was a showman, so you were focused on on him and the orchestra and every and and then the production it all made sense it was an incredibly wonderful night and then anamafo was that was one of her best roles she i know she complained years later, she said with all the beautiful costumes that uh, Cecil She complained to Cecil Beaton. Actually, she said, "You know, she said they have everybody, the whole chorus, have these beautiful costumes. I'm in rags." <laughs> she was virtually in a very simple blue. It was not rags, but it was pretty ragged. And and he simply said, "That's what Liu is. She's not going to come out dressed like Turandot." But uh, she sang it beautifully. It was there is a broadcast. Uh, Available to the men, not to the men anymore, but it used to be uh, of the of the broadcast performance. But putting those two nights together in one season sort of made you you forget all the other all the other things. I mean, the miscasting of poor Fernandi, who had to sing Leontine, Leontine not only sang um, after her Trovatore, great great success. She sang uh, I, her first Aida her first Donna Anna, with George London actually, she was lucky in that respect. And her first butterfly in white makeup, strangely enough. Uh butterfly vocally it, it was it was a good butterfly. It was completely different than anyone else's. Why she wore white makeup, I don't know. They but Marian Anderson also white wore white makeup. Not 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 white white, but you could see that she was covering up not just powder. And uh she also sang Oh, so after our Mafo after the run of Turandot the original cast Nielsen Stay and Curly stayed with it and Giotti by the way who had made his debut uh, opening night was wonderful in in, in, in Turandot it was the Timur. the whole everybody was superb and the production itself was more than dazzling it was I still remember it as as much as I love the turned Turandot the excesses of the, the Turandot that still exists at the Met today this this was a little more miniature, uh, colorful, but never gaudy, but her co- Nielsen's costume alone was worth the whole price of a mission. But uh, going back to the rest of the season, uh, without Beurling was contra 10 performances, they actually put Fernandi, who was very good in the Traviata, the of the repertory, a very good voice. They put him in Aida, which started his decline. And then there was a young American tenor who actually they favored in small roles in the beginning called William Olvis. And and if someone had told me when I first heard William Olvis, they were grooming him for the biggest role he sang was uh, in Macbeth. The, The tenor only has the one aria, and it was more than creditable. To toss him into Aida and to Bocanegra that season... I just about almost ended his career probably did it because I don't remember singing any any big roles after that did he sing Don Jose oh yes and Don Jose yes of course he sang Don Jose too because they they, they kept on putting different tenors in let me uh, mm, yeah, do a new file yeah